folks, Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine here. And before we get into this week's episode of the podcast, I want to take a minute to talk to you about Commonwealth's We Report, You Support fundraising campaign. The podcast has been a great addition to the Commonwealth lineup, and it's clear that listeners like you enjoy getting to hear interviews in their most authentic form. As we grow our reader base, we hope to keep bringing you fresh ways of reporting, but to do that, we need your help. Please support Commonwealth and the podcast by donating to the We Report, You Support campaign today. You can find the link at commonwealthmagazine.org right at the top of our homepage. Thanks again for your support. Now, on to the podcast. It seemed like the worst kept secret in Boston, and now it's official. City Councilor Michelle Wu is running for mayor. Michelle Wu has become known for her focus on big public policy issues. A year ago, she released a detailed report making a case for a wholesale restructuring of Boston's planning and development process. She has become a relentless advocate for MBTA riders, diving into an issue that is formally under state control, which often affects Boston residents more than many city agencies do. In her campaign announcement video, she said her work since being elected city councilor has, quote, changed the conversation about what is just and what is possible. I'm here with my colleague, Bruce Moll, and we're happy to be joined on the podcast by city councilor, Michelle Wu, and we are eager to hear what would be possible under a Mayor Michelle Wu administration at Boston City Hall. Michelle Wu, welcome. Thank you so much. It's always great to be with you. And so uh, we'd love to get into the big issues of the race, but, but, but before we do, I'd, I'd like to sort of just dive a little bit into your background and help, uh, help listeners get to know you a little bit better. One thing I think I was struck by in, uh, in, in reading stories on your sort of rise through politics is that you weren't really a political junkie growing up. Uh, I even read a piece saying when you arrived here in Boston to go to college, in 2004, you weren't even really, you didn't even really identify as a Republican or a Democrat. And sort of on top of that, you've been described uh, as a fairly shy person. So when you put together sort of someone not that into politics who's fairly shy, it frankly does not sound like the profile of a, a future candidate for mayor of Boston. Some days it's still a shock. <laughs> um, I, yeah, that's absolutely right. I grew up as a daughter of immigrants the oldest child in, in our family. And when my parents arrived in this country, they didn't speak English. And so not only did I not see people who looked like me in positions of leadership, we were never in spaces as a family to, I mean, I had never met an elected official um, all in my entire childhood up, up through, I think college was the first time I, I actually met someone who was serving in office. And, you know, I, I realized later on that this was an intentional decision by my parents in a lot of ways. We never discussed politics at the dinner table, barely talked about current events. And why is that? My, you know, they never came quite out and said it, but I, I have put together that over the generations in my family, you know, we've seen multiple generations of immigration. My parents from Taiwan to the US, they themselves being children of immigrants as their parents had fled civil war in mainland China over to Taiwan. And so in our family tree, politics was fear and famine and corruption. And so they very much wanted to shield all of us from that um, as kids. And it wasn't until, you know, I think there's a moment in, in each of our lives when many of the, the bubbles burst, the, the shields um, come up and 
my, my mother's struggle with mental illness, um, her mental health crisis and how quickly that came on, um, leaving me at you know, age 22, 23, raising my sisters and taking care of her um, very quickly, uh, having to deal with just how much government mattered and how much politics mattered on top of that. Hmm. I wonder if you might be able to go a little bit slower through that uh, biographical rundown. You grew up uh, in Chicago, is that right? And, and sort of what, what was your circumstances there? Yeah, we moved around a couple times, but my parents immigrated from Taiwan in the early 1980s and landed in Chicago, uh, where my dad was studying. And my mom at first was working at the Chinatown Library in Chicago as her kind of only way to stay connected to a sense of familiarity. Um, as the family grew and as my dad got different jobs, my parents always prioritized trying to buy that next smallest house in the best school district they could afford. And we moved around a few times in the Midwest and ended up, um, for me, going to school in, in public schools <clears throat> in suburban Chicago. And, you know, there was a, a sense very much that um, not only did my parents face barriers from language or culture, but the economic situation between my family and other kids at my school was very different. You know, very clear that there were, were disparities and um, that my parents' sacrifices to get us there to the, the best possible schools they could you know, buy a house to, to access very much was front and center in making sure that we were working hard, trying to study hard, trying to, you know, to, to kind of live out that, you know, quote unquote American dream. What did your father do? My dad is a scientist. Um, he studied chemical engineering and has worked on, um, how he explains it is making batteries smaller and smaller. And so that could be batteries and watches or batteries and other, you know, other devices. But he kind of, um, you know, I remember when we were very young, um, you know, getting to um, visit some of the, the uh, labs and things like that um, and seeing his career progress in, and our family's economic station um, move along with that was very much a part of why they gave up a lot to come to this country for the chance of that opportunity. And you, um, you ended up, if I have it right, after college, you came here and went to Harvard for undergraduate, but then you, you went back home afterwards. And, um, and that's around that time that I, I think, if I have it right, your mother uh, began to be not well and, and you sort of assumed this kind of caretaking role. And even uh, then briefly, sort of started a small business. And I don't know if you were thinking that that would be what you would do. I've read that you thought maybe your family or your mother would run it. Yeah, my, my mom stayed home with the kids her in, you know, entire adult life. And she is brilliant. She's full of what, I mean, she's, she sings, she, you know, would fill up every room with her personality. Um, and I still remember so many gems that, you know, in Mandarin that she's passed down to me of how to, how to think about life and issues and people and, and all this. And so, you know, I have very fond and vivid memories of, of everything that she kind of imparted to me as the oldest child. And um, it's been a very different experience for my younger siblings because her mental health crisis happened um, when they were much younger. And so I always had in my mind that my mom would kind of say, you know, one day when she, when we were all grown up 
and left, she could retire from being a stay-at-home mom, taking care of the kids and trying to do everything, um, and open a little tea house for herself. You know, she drank tea every day, uh, Chinese tea, loved it. That was her kind of way to relax. And so it was towards the very end of my time in college that we started to realize something was happening at home. And it, it seemed kind of um, just strange at first, but maybe not too, we, we had no idea how quickly everything would accelerate. Um, at first, just some kind of ominous messages from my mom. She started not to pick up the phone as much, not to talk, uh, you know, not to want to engage as much. And then it, it rather quickly accelerated over a period of a few months to um, delusions and paranoia and not eating and sleeping and, um, you know, self-medicating with alcohol for a bit of time and, and, and just not being able to care for my sisters, you know, at the same time as her, um, her marriage was, was coming apart a little bit as well. And so that left um, my sisters at home with all of this happening. I, when I got that call one day that um, it was so bad that I needed to return immediately, um, took leave from my job downtown in Boston, my first job out of college, and went back to where my family was in the suburbs of Chicago um, and realized that it was, it was very, very bad at that point and that I would need to be there for some time to stabilize the family. So as part of that, you know, dealing with the healthcare situation, dealing with the school situation with my sisters, um, and thinking that you know, I, we could open a little tea house that my mom had always dreamed of. And maybe you know, I, I kind of naively thought that as quickly as everything had happened, maybe getting some sense of stability, um, keeping us going, and, and eventually I could pass that back off to her and go back to you know, the life that, that I had uh, back in Boston. What did you major in in, in undergrad? I, <laughs> this was a whole journey in and of itself. So I ended up majoring in economics. Um, I started on day one as a biology major, right? I, my parents always wanted a doctor in the family. <laughs> and so that was very much the expectation that I was supposed to be a you know, good immigrant family daughter and, and take care of that. Um, I quickly realized that was not for me. And so we had a whole negotiation process my first couple of years of, of college. I actually wanted to study history or or social studies and, and you know, be thinking a little bit more about how everything fits together in our society. And they said, well, if, if not a doctor, at least you have to make some money. So economics was kind of the compromise there. And I got to do a little bit of, of both. But um, I spent most of my time actually in college um, outside of the classroom, spending time in, in the city. So I would come to Chinatown every single weekend as a student, take the red line, you know, over, over the Charles River and teach classes to um, seniors in Chinatown who were seeking to become naturalized U.S. citizens. And that was my home. That was my home away from home, that feeling of being surrounded by amazing people who had given up so much to come to this country for their families um, and, and getting to help them a little bit in navigating a, a, a very important part of, of their life. That's interesting. I mean, that sort of, you know, sort of prefigures, I guess, sort of an involvement in, in, in Boston life um, in a way that I think is kind of unusual. I mean, usually you hear about a lot of students at Harvard or at other schools, they stay in a close circle right around their campus, uh, you know, kind of in the, in the campus bubble or cocoon. Uh, and, but, but it sounds like that was not sort of what defined your, your college years in, in the same way. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, my parents very much 
kept my siblings and me in, in our own bubble, right? As I said, we didn't talk about, you know, politics or anything. And um, this going to Harvard, right, getting that scholarship and coming to Boston was really my first time away from home for an extended period of time. We were, we were never, you know, didn't have money to do the sleepaway camps or anything like that. So um, I was very homesick, honestly, for, for a while in the beginning. And Chinatown was very much a way to feel secure again and at home again. And it really rooted me in Boston, realizing that here was a community of people who I felt so close to and, and so connected to who were coming to a, a neighborhood. You know, not everyone lived there, but this was the hub for so many families. And this is where they were accessing services important to every aspect of their lives, right? It wasn't just that they were coming to um, learn how to be, become US citizens and take that test. They were accessing you know, housing stability services through the Asian Community Development Corporation, ACDC, and their grandkids were able to be in childcare at the Boston Chinatown Neighborhood Center. And there were English language classes at the Asian American Civic Association. And so just seeing the resources available to surround a community from all sides was really remarkable. And, and I, I, I think if not for feeling so connected to Chinatown, I mean, I, I very quickly decided in my head in my time in college that this is, this is gonna be my city. This is where I would stay and raise my family and, and really fell in love with Boston. And then you did, in fact, um, you know, after being back home a little while, as from what I've read, opened the tea shop, uh, but that didn't last long. You got applied and got into Harvard Law School. But um, again, I think this is probably, uh, I, I'm guessing you were unique among your classmates, but you arrived at law school uh, with your mother and your sisters. I mean, you kind of moved all of them with you. Your sisters were still young and, uh, you know, in, in uh, grade schools and your mother not well. And so as the caretaker, if you were gonna go to law school, I guess sort of like you decided they were going to also, I mean, not that they came to classes, but you all came to Boston. And, and then, uh, I mean, that's just sort of a remarkable story in and of itself, but, but also, I mean, what's interesting is that you said you didn't really have a political kind of antenna or, or kind of interest and it was something shunned, but there, but, but you kind of quickly in college immersed yourself in community issues, which is, you know, not politics sort of with a capital P, but in a lot of ways, and we'll get to sort of the issues around city politics, it's not that divorced from kind of, you know, what are the issues affecting kind of just everyday lives of people in the city You were there helping tutor or work with senior citizens in, in, in Chinatown. So if, if you didn't have a kind of political interest that you had a, sort of outward looking sort of community focus, it sounds like, or an interest in being involved in the community? I think in some ways, maybe, I, okay, I don't wanna overgeneralize. I was gonna say it, it might be an experience that children of immigrants share, uh, but I, I, I will, I'll just say, at least for myself, it was so much of who I am comes from seeing how my family and my parents had to navigate this world. And that as a young child, four, five, six years old, I was the guide and the interpreter for my family in a lot of cases because they could not, there was a big language barrier. And so I would, we would be at the grocery store or at school at the parent-teacher conference and they would rely on a young, you know, a little person to be communicating on their behalf. And so it always has 
sat with, I mean, I just, from my first sort of sense of consciousness about the world, knowing how there are invisible barriers and walls up and feeling a need to um, try to take some of those down or at least help ease because I, from a young age, could flow back and forth between some of these walls that my parents could not overcome. Um, and I think that sense in Chinatown as a student was very strong. You know, we would have our class and we practice, you know, at that time it was a different exam. There were a lot of sort of civics questions you had to learn and, and practice. Um, and then after class, you know, some of my students, the, the seniors would pull, pull out their bags and there would be a letter that they needed help with that, you know, their electricity bill was overdue and, and they couldn't understand and, and needed help understanding, you know, getting some guidance on what to do or who to call. Um, and so it's all connected when you realize there are so many resources all around. The services are there. The point of our government in such a well-resourced city is to provide that support. And yet the disconnect when people most need that help is huge and it doesn't take that much to bridge that. Where did you um, come to learn Spanish? In law school. Just as, how? How did that come about? I, I, took, a, I took years of, of classes and, um, in fact, also really learned so much from trying to push outside of the, the school bubble with that, too. So as part of some of those classes, um, took, uh, uh, I, I think it was a seminar or something that, where the goal was that you would be immersed in a local community organization that uh, would serve Spanish speakers. And so I got to spend a semester at first and then um, a little longer working at OISTE, the um, Latinx community-focused civic engagement organization in Boston, and then meeting the Puerto Rican Veterans Monument Square Association, working to help them set up the very first monument to the to Puerto Rican veterans and the 65th Regiment anywhere in the country, right here in Boston, uh, right at Villa Victoria, um, and and just again getting to know, love, um, be so connected to a, a community that um, contributes to the city's strength and diversity and vibrancy, um, and yet is often facing some of these invisible barriers. So were you, I just, I'm sorry for all the details, but were you, you taking the classes at Harvard or you were doing that outside? At yep. Harvard? Yes. Okay. Well, for, and for people who maybe hadn't seen this or noticed it, uh, uh, Bruce's reference, Counselor Wu recorded her kickoff campaign video, not only in English, but in Mandarin and Spanish. Uh, it's hard to not be impressed by that for those of us who struggle just in one language to sound coherent. Uh, it was pretty impressive. And Mandarin, did you ever take that formally or that knowledge is just entirely from growing up with it? Um, well, it's interesting because my parents um, didn't, barely spoke any English when I was born. And so it was just not, Mandarin's my first language. It's very different speaking formal Mandarin compared to, you know, just what you would say kind of around the house. And so my comfort level is, is very much in the kind of casual um, spoken language the written part of the language is very complicated. So I've taken, you know, from when I was very little classes um, on the weekends to try to learn that and, and some more in school as well. Um, but it, you know, it, <laughs> that, that, that is, it is sort of ingrained in me as my first language. You know, as, as the kids grew older and as my parents' English um, fluency did get better, there's, there's a little bit of a gap between me and the, the siblings of kind of how that was 
um, transferred down in the family. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I should know part of what really drove me to, to think about how I would spend my time in law school and not just taking the, the legal classes that, that you're supposed to take, but really, for example, um, spending time trying to learn Spanish and be involved in the community, you know, interning, for example, in City Hall and working at Boston Medical Center during that time as well. Um, in my very first summer before law school, before classes actually started, I spent some time at the Legal Services Center um, at near the Stony Brook tea stop in, in Jamaica Plain. And so there I had come off of an experience in my own life trying to navigate bureaucracies related to opening a small business and running a, a small family endeavor, being hugely frustrated by that. And then having the chance to work in a legal clinic where we could support community members trying to do the same thing. Um, and again, recognizing that not only was it uh, barriers because it was a complicated process and there was, you know, not the information wasn't all in one place and there are all these decision trees that were, were incredibly opaque, um, but many clients and um, community members who faced an additional language barrier on top of that. So several of the, the clients that we were helping um, were experiencing that. So wanted to make sure to, to do what I could to um, break down some more barriers as well in, in, in terms of learning Spanish. And so I, I do want to turn, you know, to sort of the, uh, the, the, the sort of current day news and, and your time as a city councilor and now uh, the, the even more recent news as a mayoral candidate. But I, but I guess I am struck that, you know, if you kind of, you know, you can kind of reverse engineer people's lives away and you look at this stuff. I mean, a lot of stuff points to this interest in kind of sort of, you know, and that's what people describe city government as kind of, you know, where government kind of meets people on the ground. And so, you know, whether it's the work you did in Chinatown or at this legal services clinic, you know, it, it's kind of the really everyday ways that, that people uh, intersect with government or that they're frustrated by it. And in some ways, that's sort of what city government is. We hear a lot. And at the same time, uh, I think especially today with sort of the sweep of all these huge issues nationally, or whether it's, you know, sort of what's happened with sort of income inequality, issues around racial justice that are much bigger, more sweeping issues. And, and I guess what I'm What's I think really interesting about the time we're in now is that you have city officials that are sort of trying to address both. They're trying to sort of be there for the things you think about at the really local level that city government is there for, but, but are also kind of voices on these big issues. And I guess that, that's maybe kind of a good transition to your work that you, you then decided at one point, I'm going to run for city council. Again, I've read that people were shocked by that. Again, it just isn't sort of how, maybe how people saw you kind of jumping into the political mix, you know, of all places, Boston, you know, there's this sort of reputation of kind of old style rough and tumble politics, but, but there you were, you know, running in 2013 and, uh, you know, doing extremely well coming in, I think second, is that right in the at-large race in your first run? Yes, that's right. And, um, and, and so you, it, it, and it's sort of to, you know, sort of get to, to where we're at today, you, you were elected in 2013, it was the same year, that uh, Marty Walsh was elected mayor. So you've kind of sort of uh, your, your time in city hall has kind of tracked alongside one another and, and now you're running. So I guess, you know, kind of just to sort of put it straight to you, you know, to run what, where, where has the, the mayor kind of left the city short that, that, that kind of makes the, 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 the urgency of a run now. So, so sensible to you. 
This is a moment that is unprecedented, a, a, a truly once in a generation moment in our city and, and beyond as well, where in the midst of an ongoing pandemic and an economic crisis, our continuing climate crisis, a national reckoning on systemic racism, we are seeing that the issues community members were always lifting up are now life and death. The very issues that COVID-19 has deepened and exposed were in fact what has been, faith, what communities have had to confront for, for decades and generations. And so, you know, in my time on the city council, I've seen that when you dig in and start to reimagine what's possible for our city, what we can get done, what we are aiming for, and you're able to bring people into that conversation to push for that scale and urgency of change, we can get things done pretty quickly in Boston. We have resources here. We have some of the most active, engaged residents of anywhere. I will put our civic associations and our community leaders up against any city's um, activists. And we have the, the ideas, the incredible expertise of where we should be going, what the solutions are, you know, both from the community grassroots level all the way to the powerhouse institutions in this area. And what we're missing, what we need to just connect all the dots is leadership that has that sense of bold aspiration, urgent action, and community-based vision. And you don't think the mayor has that? We have seen in the last seven, eight years, one of the biggest building booms in Boston's history, right? incredible growth, success, and wealth pouring into our city. And yet all of the disparities that we are most concerned about that COVID has highlighted have been deepening that entire time. Greater accelerating displacement, our schools still struggling to provide access to, to a, a baseline, you know, much less high quality, excellent education for every single child, a public health infrastructure that left us short, um, you know, where we could have been in terms of the, the resources of, of our healthcare institutions, a development process that is still based on insider connections and special exception to an outdated zoning code, which has increased racial and economic disparities with every decision that has been made, um, missed opportunities for, for Boston to connect our resources with the scale and the urgency of our challenges. You know, this isn't about any particular person. This is really about the systemic issues that communities have been facing and the possibility for us to actually confront them and tackle them. But, but it sounds like, you know, you're saying that we sort of, there was an opportunity sort of for more transformational change and I'm maybe putting words in your mouth that, you know, under the mayor, we've, it's been more maybe just kind of incremental building off of sort of the, the template of sort of what the city's been doing for years and that that's not quite enough at this moment. Is that a fair way to put it or? We are in such a significant moment, such a crisis across all different um, metric right at every our democracy is at stake our climate our 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 housing stability um this the actions that we take or don't take in this moment will really have an impact for generations to come and 
we can't afford to have reactive leadership. It's, it's been clear. If, if anything, COVID has exposed that business as usual was already failing Bostonians. We were, were already very fragile in that pre-existing status quo of who had um, housing stability or access to um, food security or reliable transit access. And so if anything, we have also seen during this time that when we choose to act, we can do big things that were previously thought impossible by getting technology to almost every child where we're still pushing to get the rest of the way there. Um, working on a, a meals program to touch families all across the city. This is a, a moment where we have to not just reimagine our systems and, and what Boston could be, it is necessary for us to do that if we are going to actually recover from this crisis. And I just want to also, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the sort of the, the, the dynamics of the race now. Um, just in the last few days, the race, well, it, it's a little awkward to talk about it now. There are two people running for mayor, yourself and your colleague, uh, Councillor Andrea Campbell now, because as people may have read, the mayor has actually not said that, that he's uh, yet going to be a candidate for re-election. There's a lot of speculation around that. Um, but uh, but Councillor Campbell, uh, you know, just in recent days announced that she's in, in the race as well. And, you know, I, I guess I have to say in some sort of broad brushstroke way, you know, there's certainly some common themes that I think you're both articulating. Um, uh, and you said in your video, uh, you know, you're fighting a system that, that wasn't built for us uh, at one point. Uh, you know what it's like to be unseen and unheard. I mean, those are those are really themes that you know are that she's she's sounding some version of as well. Uh, sort of this idea of of needing or wanting a city government that works for everyone, and sort of calling out the idea that it hasn't been that way. Um, so I, I, you know how how's how's that dynamic going to work? A lot of people have speculated if we assume, say the mayor is gonna run, if we assume with $5 million and the powers of incumbency that he might have a shot of being one of the two candidates to make it into a final election, it sort of then is sort of, you know, yourself and your count and, and your colleague kind of battling to be the, the, the one that would oppose him in a final. How does that, how's that gonna work? <laughs> I have tremendous respect for my colleague this race is about the people of Boston and the struggles and the dreams across all of our neighborhoods and communities. We are starting early, right? This is a, a usually a couple months more than your typical right. um, and, campaign, perhaps. And if I'm right, the mayor even got you started even a few days earlier than you were <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to be the one to comment on a private <laughs> conversation. Um, we are starting early to ensure that there's enough time to do this right. It's about organizing and building community in every, in every neighborhood because the scale of changes that, that we're hoping to earn a mandate on will require sustained community participation and empowerment all the way past election day. But in some ways, just as importantly, this is about having enough time to have a full conversation with the city of Boston about where we need to go. You know, not just a quick you know, snapshot or 
policy platform that goes up on the website and then people do a little research and ask some questions and then, and then go into vote. But going in and listening and building our policy from the needs of communities, having multiple iterations of what people want to see, and then putting that out there, you know, whether it's quote unquote, the politically popular um, direction or not, to say this is what we stand for because it, this is what it takes to match the scale and urgency of need in our community. We're gonna to aim to earn a mandate for that to get going on day one. Well, uh, you, you said we're gonna have, we're gonna have a lot of time to sort of unspool this and, and um, in that spirit, we, we will have plenty of time to hopefully continue the conversation and, and have you back as the race unfolds and, and uh, dig into a lot of those policy issues that, that you're talking about in more depth. But, but it was great to have you on today to just sort of give people, I think maybe a little bit more of a, of a, of a sense of, 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 of who you are, the person and, and you know, the background that you're bringing to, to what I think is gonna be a pretty interesting race for the city going forward. So Michelle Wu, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm always eager to come back because we have the wonkiest discussions on, on this podcast. We float some ideas. So I'm happy to, to get to actually go a different direction today and then come back some other time for some of that uh, policy stuff. Great. And so this has been another episode of the podcast. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine for my colleague, Bruce Mole. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time.